0: You're listening to The Economist Asks. I'm Anne McElvoy, and this week we're asking, how do you act a great figure from history? A flavor to get us going this week of the distinctive fugue sound of the great German composer Johann Sebastian Bach's Fugue in C minor. Although Bach died in the mid 18th century, he continues to captivate generations through the majesty of his fugues, cantatas, arias and masses. And while orchestras across the world still play his catalogue of nearly a thousand compositions, not so much is known about the man behind the music. Well Bach and Sons, a new play in London, attempts to unmask the mysterious maestro And my guest has the challenge of bringing the giant of Baroque back to life. Simon Russell Beale is a renowned stage actor with a career on either side of the theatrical Atlantic to his name. It's spanned four decades and he's played the giants of Shakespeare from Lear to Hamlet and won the prestigious Laurence Olivier Award in 2003 for his portrayal of Chekhov's Uncle Vanya. Film and TV roles litter his CV too, recently as Beria, terrifying and comical in The Death of Stalin. But it's the stage where he feels most at home. So as the curtains begin to rise on the difficult task of tempting us audiences back to the stalls, how does he think theatres can do it? Simon russell Beale, welcome to The Economist Asks.
1: Thank you very much. Lovely to be here.
0: We're speaking to you in the middle of the run of your latest play. It's Bark and Sons. But of course, the curtains have been down across the world. This is a bit of a re-entry to the stage for you and for the audiences after the lockdowns and the ins and outs of the pandemic. How does it feel? Is there a bit of stage fright when you come back in?
1: There was not stage fright and I wasn't nervous in the sense of being back on stage after a long time, but it has been very strange. And we had to have a week out of the run because of COVID things. And it's not a full theater because of various restrictions. And it certainly didn't start as a full theater. I think people are very pleased to be back. Perhaps I'm flattering myself, but I think they're pleased to be back. We're definitely pleased to be back. But I think there's quite a lot of tentativeness, I think. I don't know whether audiences are rushing back. Funny, if I'm off to America to pick up where I left off with the Lehman trilogy, which literally, did four shows on Broadway and I'm off in a month's time and I'm, I wonder how Broadway will be, whether it'll be the same feeling of just a little bit wary of sitting in a crowded place. There's nothing to worry about. I'm going to say that publicly on your show. Yeah, there's nothing to worry about.
0: Tell me a little bit more about the time when you weren't on stage because you are, I think, one of the most continuously employed senior British actors. I don't want to mean to say, well, you're always on, because that might sound like we think you should take time off. But That's
1: probably what you feel.
0: <laughs> it is like a bit like when people say to journalists, oh, you're very prolific. <laughs> but you are very prolific. And how is it to be at home or wherever you chose to spend the time when you were awake? Do you still follow the routine of someone who gets up every morning with a part to learn, something to finesse, something to sort out? Or do you just take time out?
1: It was a very strange experience. I came back after we did four shows of Lehman Trilogy on Broadway. Came back and there was that funny period, which we all remember, where we weren't quite sure how long it was going to last. So they kept on saying, oh, you'll be back in three weeks. And then in fact, it was one of my fellow actors who said, I think it's going to be longer than that. And they're advising us to go home. So I thought, okay, I'll go home. They used to always make a, a sort of facetious comment that whatever happened to the world Whatever happened to technology, there'd always be a space for live performance. I always used to joke it'd be fine for, for live performance because there'd always be a place for that and Of course, it was the one thing that really did collapse and I came home and I remember thinking, normally, if a job stops, you go all oh, right, okay, what's else what else is around radio or a, a recording a book and there was literally nothing and that was actually very frightening for about two months because financially. You know, I could last a little bit, but not a lot. And so I sort of thought, oh dear, we really are in trouble here.
0: I think that a lot of people would be be surprised by the precariousness. I mean, I think I could say pretty confidently one of the most bankable names, not only in British theatre, but you're on Broadway. You really felt that you, you needed to get back to work.
1: It just didn't exist. It simply didn't exist. It was like whether you're bankable or not, it just didn't exist. And we were all scrambling around for other jobs, you know, People doing driving jobs and whatever, just to sort of keep it rolling in. But literally, it disappeared completely. And then, and it was the time, wasn't it? It was, the, it was the sense of how long will this last? You know, I, I can survive six months, or I'll have to survive eight months now. Then, a year. I mean, luckily, I did a film in September. They managed to find a way of doing it safely. So I was saved by that, but it was it was it was it was scary. I think I mean, I'm sure it was for you. I mean, it was for everybody except for probably my doctors and my family, <laughs> at least had a job. <laughs>
0: right, come on to them later because we're talking about another family story, a intergenerational story. Of course, in Bark and Sons, the play you're in at the Bridge Theatre in London, it's by modern author, Nina Wright. It's about the great composer and the crotchety. See what we did there. <laughs> Please tell me that joke hasn't been made before. Absolutely.
1: That's, that's
0: he says, with a weak laugh. Uh, his relationship with his sons is, is on and off, isn't he? He's mercurial, bad-tempered, loving, but pressured. He's a difficult character, Bach, and I think the play reflects that very well. Not, I would suggest, one of the more accessible uh, composer life stories to take on. So what made you think, you know, I can do this one?
1: I mean, I grew up with him because that's that's my background, um, is in music. So as, a, you know, I sang a religious service between... Uh, eight and 21 virtually every day except holidays. And we used to do a Matthew Passion every year. And when I became a, what was called a choral scholar at university, I had, part of my job was to sing every day. So, I mean, Bach has always been part of my life. So that wasn't a barrier for me in that sense. In terms of his, his life story, yes, you're right. It's a, it's a rather dull story, his life. The one thing we knew he said rather than wrote was a swear word. I love that. He he swore at a bassoonist. So whenever I swear on stage I think, nah, that's Bach. But there was this one event when he met Frederick the Great, which is a very interesting little meeting between an 18th century autocrat and one of the greatest geniuses that Europe has ever produced, and this funny little challenge that Frederick gave him, which Bach failed to meet. So it was that little meeting, I think, as that's where this play started. And then of course Nina became as interested, if not more interested, in the family dynamics because, of course, he had at least three sons who became composers and professional musicians, two of whom became very successful. And I think she found the story of being the son of a genius an interesting one to. Channel.
0: You say he has a dull life but it's, it's also an extraordinary period, isn't it the, the 1685 he', he he's born in what's now uh, East Germany lives through the first half of the 18th century massive changes occur in that time but also one thing that's brought out very well I think in the play is basically how precarious life is when he has you can remind me how many children does he have and how many live?
1: I think his two wives between them had 20 children. I think 11 died in infancy. That sort of figure is sort of breathtaking. I think for our modern our modern ears, it's fascinating musically because he was the last gasp of this highly wrought, very complicated contrapuntal music, very elaborate, very mathematical. And it was just, just after he died that it, led by his son that music changed into what we now recognise as Haydn and Mozart, which is a few years later, which is basically a tune with a harmonic backing, which is like a, a song, and I find that pattern fascinating because it's it's a change of perception about what music is for, and that, as you know, comes up in the play. Is it is it there to praise God, as the old bark would say, or is it for pleasure, uh, as the young bark would say? I find that interesting because it, it also highlights this conflict between a man who, at the end of his life, is old-fashioned, and how a man of his genius copes with being no longer needed or wanted.
0: The play is also about the children of a very famous and demanding person and them trying to step out of his shadows, though as it happens they, they are uh, both musical and musicians. And there's such long antecedents to that situation, You know, that the family under the pressure of patriarchs, sometimes matriarch, sometimes both. I mean, you've played... Uh, Lear, that springs to mind. Intergenerational strife is always interesting, I think, on, on, on this stage. Where does this fit into? I asked you actually, I and mean, we didn't quite get to it, is really how you decided to inhabit this character. But it, you must have felt you were channeling parental relationships that you've played elsewhere.
1: <laughs> well, not, and I'm not saying this to uh, slide out of the implication, but uh, certainly not my dad. I certainly know what it's like to be from a high achieving family. You know, my siblings are all very, very impressive, Muslim doctors. And mum and dad were very um, open-armed about whatever we decided to do. When I said I'd want to be an actor, which was after, well, for a young man, quite a long period of not knowing what to do. Uh, and I said, I think I want to be an actor. And dad went, oh, thank God for that. We knew that's what you were going to do.
0: And you reference your, your father recognising that he had an actor on the books. It's always a, always a profitable moment for a parent. That. <laughs> and, and the path you, you trod into theatres, I think originally reaching back was as a Shakespearean actor, you started your professional career at the Royal Shakespeare Company. But casting your mind back before that, I think you were into school production of A Midsummer Night's Dream. Do you always really remember your first role? And what do you take away with it for the rest of your now, I think, nearly 40-year career?
1: I played Hippolyta. And I remember mum and dad were in Singapore and I was in school in London. So grandma looked after me and grandma, bless her, who lived in Romford, used to come down to see me every two weeks. You know, that's what that was. the rule was. And she made me my costume and I remember my costume absolutely clearly. It was an ivory silk dress with a sort of gold toga and grandma made it. And I thought it was just beautiful. And
0: I <laughs> So how old were you at this point?
1: Well, somewhere between eight and 13, I remember Hippolyta has a speech right at the beginning with someone's dream, and I should know this, about a crescent moon. And I remember doing what I thought was an incredibly beautiful gesture of a crescent moon. I thought it was very beautiful. (laughs) But that was my first taste of Shakespeare.
0: You've continued uh, to to run the gamut of many of the great Shakespearean roles from Lear to Iago, Othello, Ariel and the Tempest, Falstaff, the Henrys. I've always wondered when actors take on these roles, particularly when they become well-known, as you have done. You know, your name is a draw, as uh, many times, certainly for me and others at the National Theatre, you're now uh, acting at the, the bridge and your transatlantic. How much do you take the ghosts of other people's past performances with you? Or do you scrape clean your mind when you decide, right, I'm going to do the Lear my way, or indeed a lesser-known player like Timon of Athens, which you, yeah, you won uh, many awards?
1: It's a fascinating thing, this, isn't it? Because I, I wrote a, a lecture once about that, a lecture at the British Society of Psychoanalysts. And uh, I found this quote from a great psychoanalyst about doing a therapeutic session. And it was without memory or desire that you go into a psychoanalytical session without memory or desire. And I remember thinking that's a marvellous way of looking about how you approach these very great roles. I mean, the great roles have a sort of history. Try and enter the, the um, rehearsal without memory or desire. So you don't know where you're going to go, no desire. You don't know how it'll turn out. And you try to forget your preconceptions about it. I'm sort of a passionate believer in that. I think you can, you can sort of empty your mind and try very hard to get rid of some very deeply rooted and sort of almost unconscious preconceptions about these great parts, Nevertheless, the first day of my rehearsal for Hamlet, John Gielgud died. And I remember thinking, God, that's extraordinary. The greatest Hamlet of the 20th century has just died today. And I never saw it. I, I've, I've heard a recording of him doing some of the speeches, but I, it has no direct effect on me. But I just thought, this is this is strange, because I know, subliminally, I know what he did. <laughs> I know the type of Hamlet he was. And that is what I'm trying to get rid of out of my head so I can start afresh.
0: You introduced me to a concept when I came to see that the Hothouse is Pinter play, set in an asylum where the chap who's running, it should sort of definitely be in one as well, <laughs> probably a more serious one than the one he's running. You introduced me to a concept, which I think we just interesting to share with our audience, which is called acting on the line.
1: Acting on the line is about the thought and the line, they exist together. And a lot of teachers, and a lot of, especially with Shakespeare and the verse stuff, is that, in other words, you don't have the thought before. So you don't leave a pause to go and then have the thought. You just go immediately and then have the thought. And there are various little ticks that we all get into in acting. A director once called it springboarding, which is that you add a little noise before the line to get you into it. I'll give you an example. A line from Ulysses and Troilus Cresta. Time hath, my lord, a wallet at his back. I mean, time hath, my lord, a wallet at his back. That little I mean at the beginning is the springboard. So people will go, oh God, time hath, my lord. And that little sound is the little diversionary thing that means the thought is not a direct shot. It's a little bit of a Curlicue that you just lead yourself in it sounds very simple but it's actually more difficult than you think because you know some of the thoughts are very elaborate and how you do to be or not to be on the line I don't know because that's a big thought (laughs) but the reason why it's important I think in the big verse dramas especially is because they can sort of expand with lots of little sounds grunts noises and pauses of course and i'm famous for very long pauses and i do realize that so i'm the worst offender of this but big pauses
0: and I wondered how this works as you work very prolifically to it in television. You've also done a number of films, but I'm curious about this because so many of your contemporaries from the Royal Shakespeare Company, Ralph Fiennes, Ian McKellen, are known for their segue into films as a very large part of their works. Uh, you've done uh, recently, memorably, a *Barrier* and the, the Death of Stalin, a fantastic part for everything that you've just described, actually. Mary, Queen of Scots, though not playing her. Uh, it doesn't seem to me that you've sought out a big pivot to movies. Am I right?
1: I haven't sorted out. No, I'm interested in it. You know, I, I'm fascinated by it. When Rafe finds and I joined the Royal Shakespeare Company together, uh, we were contemporaries there, and of course, he then. I remember when he got. I think he got Schindler's List to do Schindler's List, and there was huge excitement about that, and that was the beginning of his film career. And I didn't feel any envy, particularly. I was delighted for him. And the the parts that I was being offered in on stage were interesting and kept being interesting. So by chance, I ended up doing theater after theater job, after theater job. You know, now I'm begin, beginning to look back. I sit there and think, well, nothing was consciously planned really. And not even the Shakespeare, although I loved Shakespeare before I started. I. Studied him at university and I loved him and I knew I wanted to do something with him. I didn't really think I would be a Shakespearean, whatever that is. So it's, it's, all, it's, all, it's all been a bit of a make it up as you go along career rather than a plan.
0: I wanted to broaden out really and look at what you think of the, the state of the profession is at the moment some of the challenges to it. And one of the big debates in the acting uh, world is whether unrepresented characters or groups should only be played by a, an actor, male or female, who's faced the same situation, prejudices, challenges. It came around, for instance, recently in a TV series, It's a Sin, which is about the AIDS crisis in the UK in the 80s. That was a, a, a case where you know, people started to look at that question of, should only gay actors play gay roles? The show screenwriter said it was more authentic. Do you agree with him?
1: I am not going to enter this debate. <laughs> but I it doesn't it doesn't worry me if uh, a gay character is played by a straight person at all.
0: And do you mind me saying is that speaking as a gay man?
1: Oh it's a gay man, yes, it's a gay man. It doesn't it doesn't worry me.
0: We were talking to David Oyelowo a few weeks ago. We talked to him, and he had a very interesting and nuanced conversation on this show, if anyone wants to listen back to it, about, about so-called colorblind casting. You can argue with the term, but you know what I mean. That your skin colour shouldn't be the determinant. And what might the limits of that be? I mean, do you think it's possible pretty much for anyone of any ethnicity, colour, race to play anyone else?
1: As I suppose, in principle, yes. I mean, yes. I mean, I think our our duty is to tell stories clearly, and if we, if the story is clearly told, then how it's told is is uh, of secondary importance, although of great of great interest. So I think yes, in principle, I have no problem with that at all, and I've grown up with that that developing debate. You know, when I started, things were changing, and they've changed quite rapidly. When I started, and things are continuing to change. We'll see where it goes. I mean, I have I have no problem really with sort of mixing it all
0: up. You know. And where do you think theatre will be? And this is a very big question. And uh, actually, I don't think, we've been here before, You, we talked, spoke to Sonia Friedman much earlier in the pandemic, but how theatre would change coming out of the pandemic? I know you've spoken very sympathetically about uh, young actors and freelance theatre workers who've either not been able to work at all or have had to basically cease doing what they love. Do you think that structurally the theatre, both sides of the Atlantic, will emerge... Is a rather different business.
1: God, you know, I I wish I had the gift of prophecy. When when this all started, and I thought, as I said to you earlier, I thought, oh, live performance will always be there. There was suddenly the possibility that live performance was not absolutely essential, and then and then something happened halfway through the pandemic period when it became evident that you know you know the argument we always use for you know the the importance of the arts was always, always economic it was always like well we bring so much into the country people spend this and you know it's an important economic engine and then suddenly the argument started changing because suddenly people realized that it was to do with sort of spiritual and indeed mental health of people that they have some sort of live connections and i remember thinking well Theatre is exactly the same as, in principle, as going to see a live football match or going to the pub or going to a club. It's it's the same thing we're missing here. And that, therefore, the argument to governments who might be able to help us out is that it's, it's extremely important. I mean, not essential, but extremely important for people's mental and spiritual health. And I think we've sort of won that argument because I think people have... Suddenly gone. Oh yes, I do miss going to clubs. I do miss my live football. I do miss the opera. So the sentimental side of me thinks that argument is unassailable. Now the pessimistic side thinks, but of course we can do we can do it all on Zoom.
0: I'll take the most uncomfortable seats in the oldest theatres in New York, London, or wherever before I, I, I do much on Zoom. <laughs>
1: I, I wish I wish I had I wish I had the confidence to say it'll come back thriving. We're willing it to come back thriving. We all are on both sides of the the curtain, as it were. But I'm hoping that'll be the case.
0: Let, let's assume that the show rolls on, and as we all hope it does and rolls on at scale and recovers scale. What uh, which character eluded you? If there's one that got away. And that's what we, we let's have a look back uh, through your roles. We mentioned a few along the way and in, in our introduction, but uh, by no means all of them. Is What do you still hanker to play? That You're just we're waiting for the phone to ring and then it's, yes, please.
1: If it was Shakespeare, uh, I would like to do false stuff on stage. Angelo, measure for measure. The thing about the Shakespeare stuff is the course that I'd quite one day like to do. And now Ian McKellar's doing Hamlet, I can I can have my pick of what, whatever age Shakespeare part I, I want
0: That's true, actually We mentioned a number of things, didn't we, earlier in debates But one thing that's really been shaken up Is, is having a Hamlet played by In McCann Who is no spring chicken So yes, I think we're going to say Age is absolutely no barrier I'm here, sitting here, I'm a generous casting agent What do you want?
1: Well, I've never wanted to do Romeo You'll be pleased to hear So that's good But actually, I'd like to do Mercutio And I saw Derek Jacobi do it as a, a more elderly gentleman actually it worked very well i can't unfortunately because i'm too superstitious but i'd like to do the scottish king i can't say his name here but i'd like to do him because well, because I, I i wasn't particularly pleased with my performance on that so and, and as for playwrights and things you know of the classic playwrights i'd like to do some more ibsen because i i don't know ibsen at all really
0: oh perhaps for those who may not uh, be as familiar with his work uh, as you are what do you- a composition that perhaps you're going to take away with you we're going to have a beautiful stereo on your desert island Uh, what's going to be playing
1: The Mass in B minor the opening movement if you want something that's just bark at his best the first movement of The Mass in B minor
0: there you go we'll have a listen thank you very much indeed Simon russell Beale. thank you well, we'd love to know what you think. Is there a particular piece of Bach's Over that's music to your ears? I think I'd go for one of those grand masses and immerse myself in their glories. But I should say, if you know your ABBA, you will find some Bach in there too. You can tell us if you've ever spotted it. Write to us, podcast at economist.com or you can tweet us at Economist Pods. And if we are music to your ears, don't forget there's never been a better time to be an Economist subscriber. For your best introductory offer, go to economist.com slash podcast offer. The link is in the show notes. My producers were Alicia Burrell and Laura Clark. I'm Anne McElvoy. And in London, this is The Economist.